0: Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobb,er and ready or not, here I come. Our guest this week is Kirsten White. You might recognise her name from a whole miscellany of YA and children's fiction, all of it lovely and macabre. Well now, with her new novel, Hide, she's turned her pen to more adult fare. On the surface, Hide is a story with a beautifully simple premise. It's a game of hide and seek that becomes a matter of life and death. That's reason enough to read, surely, but as ever, Talking Scared takes you deeper. We cut back layers of flesh to reveal the socio-political skeleton beneath, which is an elaborate metaphor to say that Hyde is about stuff as well. For example, Kirsten and I talk about economic inequality horror, about the dark side of American fairy tales, the conflict between boomers and millennials, and the difference between mazes and labyrinths. And for the craft focused amongst you, we discuss how to introduce a large cast of characters efficiently. All useful stuff. Remember, subscribe and review this show, it really helps. And if you want more, more, and a little more, sign up to Talking Scared Patreon. The link's in the show notes. But for now, off we go to a rusted, ramshackle amusement park. Close your eyes and count to ten, because something awful is looking for you let's talk scared. Well, hello, Kirsten. Welcome to Talking Scared.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Normally, I do a load of preamble, but because I've got a lot to ask you and and these episodes have been getting longer, I'm going to dive more quickly into the conversation, you know, rather than doing five minutes of very British chat about the weather. (laughs) But I am only human, and, and a British human, so to start with, how are you, and where do we find you today?
1: I'm great. You find me in San Diego, so there is no weather to talk about. We don't believe in weather in San Diego.
0: <laughs> is it just kind of, what, do you mean it's just like blue sky? We're doing it, aren't we? I, I can't resist talking about weather. Let's dispense with that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a living cliche. Um, you, you're here to discuss your new novel, Hide. It's your first book for adults. Yes and we'll talk about that, but it has a hell of a premise. So to start us off, can you lead us through this particular maze in your own words? What do we need to know about Hyde going in?
1: So Hyde centres around 14 sort of aimless 20-somethings invited to compete in a high-stakes hide-and-seek competition set in an abandoned amusement park, where the prize is enough money to jumpstart their dreams or dig them out of the holes that they're in. Um, but the stakes end up being much higher than they were told. <laughs> uh, the main character is Mac, a young woman who has just sort of been living on the periphery for the last dozen years of her life, just kind of trying to get by. And um, she has a, an appropriately tragic backstory <laughs> that makes her our our lead character to sort of lead us into the maze of this abandoned amusement park and whatever is lurking at the center.
0: Yeah, Mac is someone who is very adept at hiding for reasons that are revealed as we go on. Right, so where to start with something like this? I'm going to start in a weird place, which is the afterword. Oh, yes. Yeah, because you you say, well, you open the afterword with this this comment that hide was written as, quote, a scream of rage. And that seems an excellent register to begin this conversation. So I suppose, can you elaborate a little on that? What are you raging against?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so most of my entire career up until now has been in young adult literature. Um, and one of the hallmarks of YA literature is hope, right? Your books always have to have a core of hope. Okay. Your characters are teenagers, they're starting out on their lives. So even though you can write bleak things around them, there's always the sense of they're still young. They have their whole future ahead of them. Whatever, um, and you know, I love that. I love young adult for that. But I'm a mom. I'm I'm a millennial mom. I have teenagers of my own. Um, I'm an American, uh, and I look at this world and this country that we are handing these younger generations, and it just I'm livid. I'm angry all the time. And it was really, really nice to be able to move into um, the adult sphere, which is also really funny when I tell people it's my first adult book, they get this look on their face like, oh, an adult book. And I'm like, no, not that kind. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that anger, being able to explore that anger and not have to shoot it through with hope um, was was really uh, freeing for me, was really important to me. It's not something that I was able to engage with for a lot of my life. The way that I was raised, I was taught that anger was, was an emotion that, you know, you're not supposed to feel particularly as a girl, as a woman. And so as I've, as I've grown, as I've, you know, sort of reclaimed myself from that community and those teachings, uh, anger, is, anger is valid, anger is important. And one of the things that I love the most about horror as a genre is it doesn't look away from things, right? Like horror makes us look at the things that we don't want to. And so for me, it's that despair. It's that rage. It's that just the bleakness of particularly American society. I view this as a very sort of American fairy tale, Um, but you know, the world in general and the world that, that we are willingly passing down because it's what's been given to us.
0: When you say that about horror doesn't look away. I, I love that. I heard someone on a different, I can't remember who, I, who it was. It was a different podcast, and I heard someone say that that horror exists because none of us want the worst thing in the world to happen to us, but we want to know that if it did happen to us, what would it feel like?
1: Yeah, no, that's it. Yeah,
0: yeah, and and this book kind of confronts that head on because the worst thing in the world has already happened to a lot of these characters before they even enter the story. And then it's better they use that. Yeah. And anger comes up a lot on this podcast. I mean, I like to think it's a very kind of laid back, chilled out show. But um, (laughs) I I, I find myself asking a lot of people whether books were written in anger or written in rage. It was quite refreshing when you proclaimed that it was, you know. Um, But (laughs) I suppose to ask the obvious question, then how did all of that that you just said, how did that transmute into a story about a lethal game of hide and seek?
1: It's not It's not an obvious jump from point A to point B, is it? Um, you know, ideas are so funny and the alchemy behind ideas I find really fascinating. So this this has all been brewing for, for years. Um, many years ago, I had an idea to retell several Greek myth- myths. Um, I find Greek mythology really fascinating because it's all about how people are awful and the gods are awful and everything's awful and you do the best you can. And sometimes that's not enough. And you're just gonna be horribly killed or disfigured anyway, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. a way of it's a way of not making sense of the world, but acknowledging that the world doesn't make sense. And uh, oh well, right?
0: Oh, I like that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and and a lot of the Greek myths are incredibly sad and incredibly violent, and um, just really 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 dark which i think we're so far removed from the way that they're framed a lot that we might not necessarily get that uh so i had this idea to write like a a trio of greek myths retold where i took away the sort of more fantastical almonds and just laid them bare for the horribly violent tragic stories that they were but i wasn't ready to write that yet so i kind of set it aside but but i you know i i retained that love of of those stories and also You know, that sense that we're still living the same stories. And that's the reason why we still tell those stories is because we haven't moved beyond them. Right. And then a few years ago, I was reading an article about the Nascondino International Hide and Seek Tournament. It's a real thing. Um, That year it was held in an abandoned Italian resort town. So it's this resort town that they built thinking like, oh, this is going to be this fancy vacation destination, but they ran out of funding partway through. So it's like half built buildings and half filled pools and like all of these like trappings of luxury that never quite got there and then have just turned into this monument to excess turned into decay, which is Something that I love. And as I'm reading about it, I'm like, oh, it just it just sounds so murdery, right? You invite <laughs> a bunch of people to play hide and seek at an abandoned resort down in the middle of nowhere in Italy, like somebody's gotta be killing people, right?
0: What well, if they're not? They should be.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think they blew it. They really missed an opportunity there. Um, <laughs> but so you know, that idea I kind of tucked away, played with it for a while, um, and but but neither of those ideas were anything until I had the spark to combine them. Right to combine this love of um, of mythology and of the ways that we keep living the same cycles over and over and over again, and we never learn from them with I did see competition. (laughs) And then, you know, I I really love amusement parks. I love the absurdity of them. I love the sort of um, morally questionable excess of them. I love the fact that we create machines to simulate danger, to simulate near death so that we can experience those feelings in a way that is still safe. Um, I also love reading about horrible amusement park accidents. Uh, <laughs> and so, so those three things became one. And, um, and that was where Hyde started. It took me a while. I had to, I had to make several runs at the story. Um, and I had to get brave enough basically, because I do have a successful career in young adult and it was going well. And it didn't really make sense for me to be like, now I'm going to do this other thing. But this was a story that was just, it felt vital. And it always felt vital to me. Every time I would try to set it aside, I couldn't let it go. Um, I mean, I abandon story t- story it is all the time, right and left. I'll write twenty, thirty thousand words of something, and I'll never think about it again. And uh, this one didn't go away. And so I knew that I I had to figure out how to tell this story.
0: Well, you've kind of already answered this question by talking about hope at the start and saying that's a kind of integral part of YA fiction, not something I'd ever thought of before. Um, I don't read much YA. Back in the start of this podcast, I I had a long conversation with a YA author in which it was revealed to me pretty quickly that I'm an idiot and don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that that was with Courtney Summers, who uh, very kindly... Oh, I love her! Yeah, she was a fantastic guest, but she very, very kindly corrected my Redundant thinking on YA. Um, But (laughs) as I was reading this, I was thinking, okay, so we've got a cast of young characters, and we'll get into the details in a moment, but we've got a Mm -hmm. cast of young characters. We've got a very neat kind of high concept, Hunger Games-esque sort of idea. And I was thinking, like, what is it exactly that, that makes this an adult piece of fiction? because it seems to me the perfect book for young people to read for all the themes that we'll we'll address in a moment. But is it just that element of hope? Or is it something else?
1: Um, I am of the opinion that there isn't actually a quantifiable difference between young adult literature and adult literature. Um, I see people throw around, oh, it's just YA as sort of a, a way of dismissing something. But I have read, the most gorgeous, exquisite, mm-hmm. insightful—you know—affecting writing in N.Y.A. In, in middle grade. Um, and you know, I'll read adult books and I'll think, wow, this is a lowest common denominator here. Um, so there's, there's not, there's not a specific qualification. I think young adult, obviously your main characters are teenagers. I think there's a sense of a beginning, right? Um, that they're, they're setting themselves up for who they will become for the rest of their lives, which adult I think is more about exploring like, oh crap, here I am. How did I get here? Like. Um, so, so there's there's definitely the sense of a beginning versus the sense of um, in the middle. So you've got that hope versus that you know could be bleak resignation, could be desperation for a restart, whatever. Okay. Um, and yeah, and yeah, young adult has some pacing differences, right? You've got to hook your reader immediately. You can't ever give them an excuse to put down a book because, like, yeah, if I'm reading a book that I feel like I should be reading, like I once read a book that was entirely about a man's wonky penis and how he couldn't pee right. The whole book was used his inability to pee correctly as a metaphor. And I read the whole book. I read the whole thing because I don't know. I don't know why I did. Um, (laughs) But I always use that book as an example of like, you can get away with more in adult literature. You really can. Um, Teenagers aren't going to read something out of obligation. They're not going to read something because they feel like they should. Uh, and so young adult definitely teaches you to be very lean. It teaches you to be very quick. Uh, the pacing is relentless. Um, there's maybe not as much world building, like, you know, you're reading a fantasy novel. They're going to take a chapter to, to divert into the history of farming and this one particular crop that led to the rise of this faction of the government, you know, so on and so forth. You can't do that. Um, I mean, you can, you can technically do anything if you do it well, but, but yeah, I think there's for me essentially there's not that much of a difference. So Hyde uh, has characters in their mid twenties. It has characters who um, are not starting out on their lives. They're they're in a place where they feel like they should have a solid start to their lives and realizing they don't. Which you know it's a very millennial horror story. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I could talk all day about the differences or the lack thereof between young adult and adult. But I knew for me personally, I wanted to be able to tell this story as brutally and as honestly and as bleakly as I wanted to. I didn't want to have to care about these teenagers, like, or about these characters, like they were teenagers. Like I needed to usher them into the beginning of a hopeful new start. I yeah. could just
0: tell the story I wanted to. Is there still a taboo against killing teenagers? Then, because I tell you why, because I, I, I've see, been watching stuff this weekend, and just by chance, I watched. You ever seen the the, the film um, Attack the Block? The British, yes,
1: love that. So, so I wa-
0: watched it for the second time. Um, I saw it in the cinema years ago, and it left little impressions. I thought I'm going to watch it again, and I was astounded that they kill kids in that in that film. Yeah, and then I'm watching this amazing Korean zombie thing. Um, all of us are dead oh, on all of us are dead yeah
1: yeah and again yeah. They,
0: you know they're ripping kids apart and I'm, I'm I mean uh-huh. I'm all backs. I like to feel unsafe when I watch or read things yeah. you know but is there still a taboo against killing people who are under 18 in fiction
1: no I mean it it really depends on the genre right um I don't think there is I think you just kind of a Approach it differently depending on the genre so for for me it's really still more about genre than about age bracket I mean I have friends who write books with massive body counts and Mm -hmm. you know poor teenagers littered everywhere um so yeah it's not it's not so much about that it's it's I just kind of viewed it as I can take the gloves off um I don't have to be aware that I am writing for younger people, that maybe, you know, a 12-year-old is gonna read this as their first introduction to novels. Um and so I didn't have to Yeah, yeah. I, I think I just keep coming back to hope, to that sense of hope and potential. I didn't have to infuse the book with that.
0: Okay. Okay. Well this whole thing about you know generational divides, whether it's YA fiction or adult fiction, that that divide between young and old seems to me to be fairly central thematically to this, this novel. <laughs> uh, we can get into plot now. So you, you've got this yeah. um, hide and seek competition that is conducted by an older generation um, mm-hmm. at the, at the, the the cost of the younger. Um, it's mm-hmm. essentially, isn't it a novel of kind of boomers versus generation Z. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yeah. And it, it, it seems to me there's, there's, some satire in that but it also yeah. feels like you're making a serious point about exploitation of the young and this misplaced notion of who actually has the entitlement
1: yeah i you know i i wasn't trying to be subtle <laughs> <laughs> it's just not a subtle book um i've i've seen some early reviews that were like it got really political and i'm like yeah it did didn't it it's an american fairy tale how could it not um yeah i just i look at I look at my kids, right? I'm a mom. I've got two teenagers and an elementary schooler. And I look at the world that we have given them. And I look at the fact that all of my kids from the day they entered school have had drills teaching them to hide from an active shooter. Um, I had an experience when my middle child was in middle school where he called me because he wasn't aware it was a drill and he really thought he was maybe going to die. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It is so much trauma. It is so much trauma that we are putting on their shoulders from when they are five. And it's because as Americans, we have looked at our country. We have looked at the costs and we have said, this is acceptable. This is an acceptable price to put on our children and on their children, so that we don't have to give up anything that we feel like we are entitled to. Um, and and it's fascinating to watch as you know as generations get older and they get settled and they get this sense of entitlement. They get this idea that I have earned what I have. It's my right to live exactly the way that I feel like I should be able to. Damn the consequences. Damn the next generations. We're not giving anything up and um you know I'm 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 an elder millennial I'm in my late 30s and I I look at myself and I wonder like you know what am I getting settled into Mm -hmm. what am I going to be able to justify because I've earned it because I deserve it at the cost of the next generations right because it's going to happen it 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 happens over and over again it's a cycle um it's the same cycle you see showing up in Greek mythology again and again where we sacrifice the youth because it's our right Mm. and uh and yeah so that was that was that was something that I was definitely interested in engaging with um (laughs) yeah it's it's not subtle
0: (laughs) yeah there's certain parts where these older people start sort of quibbling and, and and criticizing young people for their entitlement because they they won't mm-hmm. help these old people perpetuate the thing they want to perpetuate uh, mm-hmm. and and it just makes you realize that the sort of age-old narrative of young people as frivolous and lightweight and, and insubstantial and entitled you know it, it's yeah. totally being turned on its head in 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 the current world like completely yeah. like all the responsibility now, or both the responsibility and the sense of responsibility, is with young people. Like yeah. you know, it's, I find it infuriating, as you say, mm-hmm. that people are, you know, they, the people have ruined the planet. They've bought all the houses,
1: <laughs> you know, what I mean? yeah.
0: and and they don't yeah. they don't want to give anything up. The selfishness is just astounding, and I mean, we don't have the the, the shooter drills in the UK, thankfully. But we have we have other less grandiose, less less violent things that we are exerting upon young people. Brexit being one of them, you know. Yeah, fuck you and your future. We we don't want to let you know. Um, And yeah, I I I didn't, as I say before this conversation, I thought this was going to be a book about people with axes running around an amusement park, (laughs) and it's this whole it's this whole social political allegory that's just kind of stowed away in, in what is still. A really pulpy fun novel
1: yeah 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 i I mean i wanted to make sure that it still functioned exactly how it should right it's tense it's paced like a thriller there is a body count i mean it's 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 still a horror thriller novel um but my favorite stories are the stories that tell more than one story at the same Mm -hmm. time um so it was important to me that um that there were those layers uh i i often get asked if i start with an idea characters. And what I actually start with is a question, Um, a question that I'm asking myself as I tell the story. I'm not necessarily looking for an answer. I'm just exploring it. And for me, if I don't have that question, then I feel like the book doesn't have a soul. It doesn't have a reason for existing beyond just, oh, this is a cool idea. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, for me, this story always has to have a soul. It has to have a reason for existing beyond just, wouldn't it be cool to have a hide and seek competition in an abandoned amusement park where things go horribly wrong, which is cool. (laughs) Um, but yeah, yeah, I always, I always want more. I always want to be telling a story with the story that I'm telling.
0: And what, what was the question?
1: Um, so with hide the question, I'm trying to think if I've ever specifically phrased the question. Because, yeah, I have, I have it specifically phrased for previous books because I've talked about it. Um, for example, one of my young adult trilogies is a historical fiction novel that asks the question, how do normal people get to the point where they can justify committing atrocities in pursuit of their goals? Um, which is, you know, light, easy, fun question to answer in young adult literature. Uh, <laughs> but for Hyde, I think it was maybe similar. How do we justify the cost? How, how can we justify the cost?
0: I was going to offer, I mean, in, in a massively arrogant way to tell you what the question of your own book was, but I was going to say <laughs> it, it strikes me as a book about what do the old expect of the young? You know, what what yeah. what, what cost do we expect future generations to pay uh, yeah. for the status quo, you know? It, yeah. And it, it seems more important than ever when, when, when you live in a country which is now insisting there will be a next generation from every uterus that can offer one, it, it does. Yep. It seems more pertinent than ever. Listen, we won't go down that road. That's too. That's too grim to embark <laughs> down.
1: Yeah, I just, I would just start screaming. We just, the rest of the podcast would just be us incoherently yeah. screaming. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah.
0: This episode is supported by Novelic, the book app for people who want their suggestions from fellow readers, not an algorithm. Novelic is the perfect way to curate your TBR list with. Real recommendations from fellow-minded readers broken down into genre, including, yeah, horror, and all-adjacent delights. You can download Novelik for free on iOS or Android devices and start browsing right away, or join a book club for more in-depth chat on your favourite topic. The Talking Scared Book Club is up and running for Patreon members. Try Novelic for a nicer way to find your next read. I'd realised late on that there was an economic subtext to this novel, but it's only mm-hmm. early on that I, it's only later on, sorry, that I realised it was there right from the start because the book opens with the line, it takes money to make money. You know, mm-hmm. a, a character's father says that. And and that from the very get go int- introduces this idea of entitlement. And if you start from a certain position, you'll always be better off. And, you know, that that disparity that is always baked into, contemporary life and stuff and I was speaking to the writer Jason Rekulik a few weeks back about his novel Hidden Pictures and I brought this idea of what I've heard referred to as one percent horror horror that's actually Mm -hmm. about economic inequality and Mm -hmm. I think that Hyde more than any book I've read recently seems to be right in the center of that.
1: Yeah for sure um yeah it's definitely economic (laughs) inequality horror uh because none of these people would be in this competition in the first place if the idea of $50,000 wasn't life changing because one of my one of my editors actually pointed that out she's like $50,000 isn't actually that much money i mean mm-hmm. it is right i've had periods in my life where $50 was life changing um but but in the grand scheme of things right in the grand scheme of an entire life in the grand scheme of you know an american life $50,000 isn't a down payment on a house. It's not, you know, half of college debt. It's not an unimaginable amount of money. And I did that on purpose. I made it not a a dream. Like it's not a million dollars. It's not, you're going to be okay for the rest of your life if you win this. It's, you're going to be okay for a little bit if you win this. Maybe you'll be okay enough to translate this money into being okay for longer than a little bit. Um, And that was important to me because, yeah, it's it's very much um, the American dream, right, that anybody from anywhere starting at any point can become wealthy, can can become anything they want. And it's not true. It's never been true. Um, There are exceptions. And then there's the rule, which is if you start. Ahead of the if you start two feet from the finish line, yeah, you're going to get there. But most people don't. Um, and I look at particularly my generation, um, and so many of my friends have worked so hard their entire adult lives, and they're still in the same place. They're yeah. working to keep working, right? And and it's bleak and it's depressing. And then you hear these older generations complaining about how you know again we're so entitled, and if we would just manage our money better and they had a house at that age and it's like yeah your house cost what a car costs like yeah. well, of course what, you did
0: what's the famous thing if you ate less avocado for brunch, avocado toast have... yeah, Yes, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah if we just stopped eating that avocado toast we'd all be where they are but we can't be where they are because they're there <laughs> and uh yeah so yeah that was that was a huge huge uh factor in the book was was yeah economic insecurity horror and the things that people are willing to do and the things that people are willing to give up just to make ends meet. I have, I have a character in the book who I really love. Um, Her name is Ava too. (laughs) It's just one of those stupid things you do as a writer where you're like, Hey, could I give two characters the same name and make it clear through the whole book who I'm talking about? And also kind of make it have some meaning that these two characters have the exact same name. <laughs> it's, well, such I... a stupid, it's such a pointless challenge, right? Like nobody asked me to do that. I just made extra work for myself, but you know, that's.
0: I'm glad you brought that it's... up because that's one of the things I wanted to ask you because yeah, that you've got Ava and Ava too, or there is yeah. beautiful Ava and other Ava. And then the question of who other Ava is shifts depending on who the point of yes. view thing is. So it, so it gets very complicated um, so, so you've got a you've got Ava who is this? Might got they might got this wrong with which one is which. Basically, you've got Ava who is our Mac, our protagonist, her kind of closest um, friend in the group, and she's a yes. queer veteran who has yes. both bodily and psychological trauma that she's mm-hmm. brought with her. And then you've got the other Ava, Ava Two, or beautiful Ava, who's this influencer wannabe Instagram star. Um, mm-hmm. Why did you name them the same? What were you trying to kind of tussle with there?
1: I mean, it was in part 100% just me being an asshole to myself <laughs> and being like, I bet I could do that. I bet I could give two characters the same name. Um, and then too, you think about an elementary school. I don't know if you had this, but Ashley was very big when I was in elementary school. And so you had, you, you weren't just Ashley, you were Ashley B and Ashley P and Ashley K. Okay. So you you had to be distinguished. Your name wasn't enough to sort of make you stand out, and and I really wanted to, to explore this concept of how we prioritize other people, how we think about other people, um, and so for me having two Avas, and then the way that Mac relates to them, and the way that they view themselves in that context. Um, so Ava, Max, Ava doesn't care that there's another Ava, that doesn't threaten her, she, she doesn't care. Whereas the other Ava, who is trying to make a living out of standing out, out of being noticed, is very, very concerned that there's another Ava. And she's very determined that she won't be the other Ava. She wants to be the Ava. And, and just that idea that we have to compete with everything that we are. And, and Ava, too, really represents that, right? Like, she has a line in there that she she's turned herself into a product. She's trying to leverage anything she could possibly find in her entire life in, in a desperate effort to make it, to mm-hmm. make enough money, to be able to live a life that, that she thinks is, is worthwhile. Um, and so for her being the other Ava, it's, it's the worst thing that she can imagine, right? It's it's being, it's not standing out. It's nothing that she has is remarkable enough for her to be the Ava. And just this pressure that that particularly women feel where you have to be the best at everything you do. You have to present yourself perfectly in every possible space that you're in, because if you don't, you're failing, um, and so yeah, so so having Ava, who is perfectly content in who she is and knows who she is and isn't threatened, and then Ava too, who has internalized all of these things and is just desperate not to be shuffled to the side, is as um you know was an was an interesting character study, um, and and I did that in part through giving them the same name, but also you know just made my life really difficult.
0: Well, it made me smile because something I've always thought. You know, you get these really long running TV shows like Grey's Anatomy or in in, mm-hmm. in the UK, we have these soaps that have been going for like 50 years, like Coronation Street. Um, and there's never, ever been two Michaels in Coronation Street in 50 <laughs> yeah. years on this street. There's yeah. never been two people with the same name, you know. So I like that you gave two of 14 the same name but whilst we're talking kind of craft sort of questions because this is something i I always get told i don't ask enough about (laughs) and would like to ask a question to help me out because um i I like to use this podcast to troubleshoot my own attempts at writing a novel and one of the things i have come up against in my abortive story is dealing with this large cast of characters that i have and not having much time to introduce them because of the, the 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 fast start to the plot the necessary fast start yes Do you have any tips for how you do that? Because you've got 14 characters plus the people outside the park. And in in almost thumbnail introductions, you've got to get us with these people and explain who they are.
1: Yeah. Um, And and I like that you used the word thumbnail because that's what I did. Um, That's how I approached it. It was a very large cast. Um, It was a very daunting challenge. I don't typically write large casts. Um, I tend to stick to a tight third or first person even in the past. And so this was a new challenge. Um, if it's not clear, I get bored really easily. <laughs> and that's what I love about writing because I'm like, how am I going to screw myself over with this book and make it something I've never done before? So I'm not good at. So I struggle the entire time. Um, it's great. I love it. And so for this one, I, I tried to introduce them almost as stereotypes as thumbnails as here's the insta- here's the here's the dating profile for this <laughs> character um here's their life summed up in a single paragraph so you know who they are right um so you think that you know who they are and then that gave me the freedom as the novel progressed to then sort of zoom in and give you like okay you know who this character is you don't Maybe you know who they are. You don't know why they are, um, you know, because I'm, I'm endlessly fascinated by the idea that you can never truly know another person, right? Like my spouse and I have been together for 20 years. We have our own language at this point. We reference things as shorthand that we don't even remember why we reference them. Um, we often play Wordle and we will guess the same words in the same order. Um, but I still don't know what he's thinking, right? Like I don't know and I can never know. And and I love writing because you can you can really explore that, right? You can look at a character through somebody's eyes and they say, I know exactly who this person is. And then you jump to that person's head and and you realize like you had no idea. You had no idea what informed them. Or maybe you did. Maybe you were right and they are exactly who you think they are, but here's why. Um and, and I find that really fascinating. It was a fun challenge. So yeah, I definitely started with the with sort of the thumbnail with a Here's the three lines that exactly sum up who this person is. So then, then later on in the book, I could give them their own section where you discovered either that was correct and here's why, or that was wildly incorrect and here's why. Um, and so it's it's both building on and subverting these expectations that you build that you that you create when you introduce the characters. Um, all that being said. I, I could definitely do that because I did do an omniscient third. There's a lot of, there's a lot of head jumping. Um, everybody gets a point of view section. Um, so I could give you that insight into their heads. Um, if you're doing a tighter third, or if you're doing first person, it's a lot harder to juggle that many characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and my only advice is good, good luck. <laughs>
0: Yeah, because I mean, I will ask about the characters in a moment in more detail, but you said a while back that you don't normally have big casts and stuff. And I was Mm -hmm. thinking that, you know, a a cast list of this size with 14 characters and various other people, that would be a 500, 600 page novel, you know, that would take (laughs) like a long. I'm thinking of someone like Stephen King's The Stand, you know, which takes almost a novella to introduce each character.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: You. Just don't do that. And I was kind of (laughs) impressed. And, And also, if I'm honest, a little startled by how efficiently you kind of establish the setup of this story. You've got all this background to include and lots of plot architecture. But you kind of just go, wham, here we are. Chapter probably three. This is the situation. These are the rules. Here are your characters. Were you tempted to dwell a little longer on the build up?
1: Um, I think initially when I started writing it, I did have a longer buildup and I just realized, you know, the hook of this book is an abandoned amusement park, right? Mm -hmm. You go inside an abandoned amusement park and something bad is happening. Um, and so I realized the sooner i get them in the park, the better in terms of pacing, um, in terms of character development. Uh, and so, so yeah, I did, it's a very lean book. There is, there's, it is just a little down to the bone. Um,
0: yeah, it and moves, was, it really moves yeah, along. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I also, because two people get out every day, I needed to get them into the park fast. And then, you know, there are some characters who are not actually in the book for very long. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so yeah, I, I did try to be very, very efficient with the storytelling um, and and just really pack as much as I could into as few pages as possible that wasn't deliberate but just just in terms of of moving the story and keeping it moving um yeah it was it was definitely a goal to see how much I could do in how little time
0: and I was interested as well that you seem to dispense with any concern for regular chapter length
1: (laughs) yes I did see review. I don't usually. I mean, I, I glance at reviews. Somebody was real mad about that. I'm sorry, but um, yeah, I wanted to break it down into before the game, and then the game is seven days, and so it's day one, day two, day three, day four, um, and that I uh, I think because I did have so many characters, um, I that was how I chose to organize the book, and that's how it worked best in my head because it's a complex book right there are a lot of moving parts there's a lot of characters and so I had it all mapped out of like day one this is what happens day two this is what happens day three this is what happens these are the points of view we need for this day these are the points of view we need for this day um and and so that structure that that was how I structured it in my notes and in my outline and so that's how I structured it my draft and then I liked it um I, you know, and I'm definitely guilty of like I'm reading a book, and if I see a chapter's really long, I will be like, I don't have time to read that right now. So maybe I was shooting myself in the foot there. Um, but, but yeah, I liked that structure. I liked structuring it as this is the game,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you're in it, this is how it goes.
0: It's weird that chapter line, just doesn't bother me at all. I'll just put the book down and pick it up again when I can come back to it. I don't. I don't. I think maybe it's because I read all the time, so there isn't really enough mm-hmm. time for me to forget what I have just read, you know. Whereas, um, maybe if you're picking a book every every three days, maybe it's harder. Yeah. But yeah, the chapter length thing just isn't a concern for me. There could be no chapters. I don't really care. I don't even notice mm-hmm. them a lot of the time, to be honest. I only mm-hmm. notice because I was reading it on Kindle, and it makes it much more obvious because it gives you a countdown. So you know the. <laughs> and I remember thinking like, this chapter is like an hour and fifty minutes in length. I'm like, really? Um yeah it doesn't doesn't yeah. bother me in the slightest yeah. yeah yeah but it yeah like i say it does for all, for all this talk that we've done about theme and economic stuff and p- political stuff this book moves it gets you into the park in very short shrift and then it it lets rip um Ooh. i i say that to to kind of make sure that people who, who think this book isn't as fun as it is aren't dissuaded um the idea of a game that turns murderous right that that's mm-hmm. something that we've seen plenty of times before, all the way back to stories like The Most Dangerous Game. And I was thinking about things like the most recent Escape Room movies, you know, or Mm -hmm. even, I suppose, in a way, Saw um, as a particularly vile version. Uh, You give it a whole different dimension. And this is as close as I will tiptoe to the the mystery at the centre of this. But you have this maze-like layout of the park. And it's a system that keeps the game players confused, but also keeps certain dangers contained. Mm-hmm. Now, you've already mentioned Greek myth and stuff, but it, it does feel like you were inspired by 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 the, I don't know, the symbolism and the significance of mazes throughout culture.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and, I, you know, part of Part of why I structured the park as a maze. Yeah, it's it's very central to the story, but also made my job a lot easier because I didn't have to keep track of where things were. I could be like, it's so confusing. They never know where they are. <laughs> uh, which actually, again, I paid for um because my wonderful editor, Trishan Narwani at Del Rey, was like, We're gonna, we're gonna make a custom map of the amazement park. So can you draw it all out and label all the rights so that you know we can have this this art created? And I was like, ah. <laughs> I sure can't. Um, I'm just not a detail oriented person. So I had to figure it out at that point. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, so I, I have actually done a lot of research on mazes and on labyrinths. I love the idea of labyrinths. Labyrinths are a meditation. Labyrinths are, it's not a maze where like you can make a wrong turn. Labyrinths are like one continuous trail that, um, bends and curves and loops around so that even though you're in a contained space, you're walking a great distance. And they were created as, as a meditation, right? That you are on this path and and it's going to weave and it's going to loop and it's going to bend, but eventually you're going to reach the heart of it. Um, and so you can just sort of surrender yourself to that and, and walk without worrying about where you're going and, and, and meditate, which I love. I think that's really beautiful. Um, but then you also have mazes where, um, the maze is intended to, to disrupt, to mislead, to, to trick. Um, you have, you have mazes with terrible things at their center. You have all those things. And so, yeah, I, I, I definitely loved the idea of presenting this park that was, that was, Designed specifically to confuse people, to draw them in deeper, um, to not let them out until the end. I mean, you look at like Disneyland. I go to Disneyland a lot. Um, I'm a Southern Californian, it's actually required by law. And uh, it's so small. It's so small when you actually look at it, you know, from above, but the way they have it laid out, there's never a straight path from one thing to another. Mm -hmm. And so you spend so much time wandering around and you really feel like you're in the middle of, um, this sort of, you know, liminal space that exists outside of Southern California. It is its own thing. And the design of that, I think, is really fascinating. And the purposes that it serves are also really fascinating. I mean, the purpose is being spend more money. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, I, you know, the maze is a big part of the book. It's a big plot point in the book that we're going to skirt around. But it was really fun designing this sort of abandoned amusement park, which is something that I also love. It's my only Pinterest board is photos of a mansion amusement parks. <laughs> and. Uh, and infusing it with with the maze and the significance of mazes and, you know, also functioning as a metaphor for these 20-somethings who are lost, trying to navigate their own lives, trying to navigate adulthood and, and trying to find a path free and clear toward their goals, but they can't.
0: Well, as so often happens, you've perfectly... Uh, segued into what I wanted to ask you because I, I had no natural leap from the last question to this one, and you just you just bridged <laughs> it for me, because these these fourteen young people in the park, as you say, they're they're all, if not lost, they're all at least searching. Um, yeah. Some of them are Instagram influencers or YouTube hosts or CrossFit instructors. All these things that are really, you know, typical. Generation Z, geriatric, millennial jobs, really? um, and you seem quite committed to contrasting those jobs with a few other people in the park, a few other conte- um, contestants who are like a gas station attendant or a veteran, and mm-hmm. you even kind of set the lists out separately in the in, when you introduce them, and. Am I wrong in thinking that the latter group, the people with more, shall we say, hands on jobs, less digital jobs, they seem to be characters who have a bit more substance or at least a bit more sense of who they are.
1: Yeah, no, you're not wrong. Um, I'm trying to think of how how to talk about this without sounding like I'm trashing a specific character. Subset of people because I am, you know, I list them as as aspiring and stalled, um and you know, I would definitely list myself as aspiring, right? Like I went mm-hmm. into the arts, I went into um uh, uh, a hustle job, right? I constantly have to be looking for new opportunities. I constantly have to be creating my own opportunities. So I would definitely fall into that first category. I, mean,
0: I, I quit a um, job and started a podcast, so I am I am part of the yeah. choir. <laughs> so generally. you get it, yeah. you get it,
1: and and there's that element of Of turning yourself into a product. Yeah. That is something I've been thinking about a lot, a lot the last few years. How much of myself have I given to social media? How much of myself have I crafted as a persona, as an image, as Mm -hmm. something that people will see and say, I like her. I want to buy what she's offering. Um, and I, it is a little bit soul killing, right? It is a little bit, you are, you are commodifying yourself. And I look at myself, you know, I'm, I'm a deeply ambitious person. But, you know, I don't apologize for ambition because it was another it was another aspect that I was I was told as a girl that I shouldn't have Um, not by my family, but by the by the community and the culture that I grew up in. Um, And and I often have found women who raised in similar communities where they were taught this is what you need to be and this is how you need to be it. And they're deeply unhappy because all they have as measures of success are what other people can see Mm -hmm. Um, their looks, their families their homes, their material wealth, which is generally, um, contributed by a spouse because they're not supposed to work. And when I've had these friends who are just so unhappy, because again, that's all they have. That's all they have as markers for their worth, for their progress. Um, I I always tell them, I'm like, get a job. I'm not saying that like, like you need to get a job. I'm saying, get something that's yours. Get something that belongs to you. Get something that you don't depend on other people's validation because it will change your life, right? It'll make you realize like you have inherent value outside of what you're contributing to other people. You have inherent value outside of whether or not other people are responding positively to this image of yourself that you have created. Um, And so, yeah, I definitely, I definitely explored that with, with the different characters because I think that is, we have this, you know, this generation and and younger are hyper online, hyper visible. You have so much constant feedback, but none of it means anything. None of it actually has value. Um, And that, (laughs) that messes you up. I don't know. I don't know what to do about it. Like I don't even know what to do about it in my own life. Like I'm constantly like, should I just get off of social media entirely? But then there's that fear that if I do, I'll be missing out on something, I'll be losing opportunities, so on and so forth, back for, you know back and forth forever. Um, and I think that that struggle, that sort of being constantly caught in limbo between doing what's best for yourself and doing what other people think is best for you, I think is really expressed in yeah, in those in those aspiring characters, the characters who who have tried to become successful in the very visible ways that they've seen other people become successful.
0: It's incredibly interesting to me because I feel like I've lost part of myself just in the making of this show. I mean, this show is—you mm-hmm. know—it's—it's it's a footnote in in relation to some things. You know, it's—it it's, takes yeah. up so much of my time, and my listeners seem to love it, and I'm incredibly grateful. But mm-hmm. I am aware that I am losing parts of myself to it, whether it's um, just time I spend on other things, or or more kind of like the the, the amount of time I'm. I'm thinking not about the creative process, but checking analytics. how, how many, how many yeah. downloads have I got or stuff? And yeah. and what really disturbed me this week is I, I went for, a, I run quite a lot and I went for a run over the moors in the most beautiful sunshine, right? It was just the most perfect day for a run. And I'm running through just unspoiled kind of wilderness, like quite near my house. Um, and I realized all the way there, I was looking for photographs to take. That I could yes! contort into something that I could put on the Talking Scared Instagram page. Yeah. And I'm like, my God, yeah. I am. I, even in the time that I'm supposed to be emptying my mind and just living my life, I'm doing these weird contortions to, to make this a, a hustle. And I hate that word. I hate the word hustle yeah. because yeah. Yeah. To, to me, that word is we the little people have been sold this idea that it that it's a a morally upstanding thing to always be working you know and always be looking for opportunity and stuff but I realize I'm becoming I'm becoming susceptible to that massively and that's just for this little show that you know makes me no money at all and so Mm -hmm. you think these poor people who have got their entire sense not only their careers but their sense of self-invested in this stuff Mm -hmm. wow
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I just love that. Yeah, you realize you are mining your own life for content.
0: Yeah, (laughs) even that word "content." You know, hustles used to be hobbies, and content used to be creativity, and just the way those two words have been capitalized. You know, they. Oh,
1: there was a there was a my my kids' high school sent out something that was like some class on turning your hobbies into a side gig that you could make oh, money from. Yeah. And I was like, absolutely not. Are you yeah. kidding me? These are teenagers. Let's don't teach them that everything you spend your time on has to generate income. Otherwise it has no value. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's everywhere. It's just so persistent and so pervasive. Um, And yeah, definitely. Definitely things that were on my mind and are still on my mind. Um, I made me sad when you said it's been harder to read because you're reading so much for the podcast specifically. And it's, it's similar when you're a writer, your relationship to reading changes. It's harder to sort of shut off and enjoy reading. Instead, you're like, Oh, this book was wildly successful. But let me dissect why it was successful. Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, you, it just changes things, and yeah, it's it's a trade off. It it comes necessarily with turning your passion into your career, but it's you know it's a loss. It's a, it's a it's a sacrifice that you're making, which again ties in nicely to hide.
0: <laughs> well, it does, yeah, because th- there is something about th- the the kind of what's happening inside the park and the way that it becomes a kind of dog eat dog competition Mm -hmm. completely Mm -hmm. mirrors the life that these people are living outside the park where you have to you have to devour the opposition to win because there's only so much market share for you as a brand
1: yeah yeah when those people aren't the enemy they're not your competition they're not what's holding you back it's the next level up but you know they've done a fantastic job of marketing (laughs) yeah <laughs> and so you do, you view it as these people around me are the reason why I'm not successful and not the people who are the gatekeepers, the people who are holding the door shut.
0: But the flip side of that is that Mac, our again, we haven't really talked in a lot of detail about these people, but Mac our protagonist to remind the listeners, mm-hmm. um, she develops these kind of fledgling bonds with with Ava and an intriguing character called Legrand and another character, forgive me, is it Brian, the happiest gas... Brennan. Brennan. Bre- Brendan. Brendan, yes. that, that, the happiest <laughs> gas pumper in the West. Um, yeah. <laughs> my favourite character. They become a little bit of a oh, a sort of group within the group, uh, and yeah. uh, that's always my favourite aspect of these stories, whether it's The Hunger Games, mm-hmm. or whether it's King's The Long Walk, both of which I can see, you know, elements of in, in Hyde. Um, I mm-hmm. love that paradox of characters being put in a live or die competition, but... Irresistibly growing close to their yeah. competitors, because that, that, to me, seems to get to the very heart of being human.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, they're they're in this extreme, strange situation, and yeah, the the choice is do I abandon everyone and look out only for myself or do I let myself care about these people around me, knowing that that's going to affect the way that I can move through this game affect my chances of winning. Um, and it was really fun building that group dynamic. I mean, I love all of these characters <laughs> so much. Um, even, even the ones that I know people are going to hate um, Brandon. I love, he's not one people are going to hate. I love Brandon and, um, he has one of my favorite lines. <laughs> he's really excited to be friends with Ava because he suspects she's a lesbian. And he says, I don't think we have any of those in Idaho. He's just so sheltered and so sweet and so open and loving, which is a perfect um, sort of counterbalance to Mac, who is so shielded and so closed off that she kind of, he. I think he's the first one to really get through to her because she can't she's powerless in the face of, of just how nice Brandon is and how happy he is to be there. And then, anyway, sorry, I just, I, <laughs> I really love all these characters a lot. Um, and it was, so, it was I think that was one of the joys of where he was such a large cast is I got to explore so many specific people and so many specific ways of engaging with other people and engaging with the world and viewing the world and responding to trauma and responding to crisis.
0: Yeah, indeed, and, and again, just to reassure people that this isn't too heavy a book. All sorts of fun, different ways to kill them as well. So.
1: <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Um, yeah, I know it is funny because people are going to read the book and they're going to be like, what? I think that's one of the most fun thing about being a writer, right? Is you get to explore these things that are deeply meaningful to you. You get to engage with big ideas, but you also get to do them in an abandoned amusement park as they are being hunted one by one and disappearing. So like, you know, what's not to love?
0: Well, indeed. And I think that's probably as close as we can go without spoiling things. So
1: yes, let, yes. let's
0: leave it there. Um, all that's left is to ask you the questions I always ask. I hope the listeners aren't bored with this. If you are, you can let me know. Otherwise, I'll just keep asking them. But can you recommend a book for my listeners to read and tell us why?
1: Yes. So I was going to recommend Horror, but then I figured your listeners no horror right it's like when you go on twitter and you say hey i love horror i read it all the time can you recommend a book for me and 12 people jump on and immediately recommend stephen king and you're like bugs i just said i love horror i promise i know who stephen king is um so i'm not going to try to recommend horror to your listeners instead i'm going to recommend gideon the ninth by tanson muir it's a brilliant bizarre baffling just absolutely bonkers book about necromancers in space it's a closed door murder mystery it's got elements of horror it's got elements of fantasy it's impossible to quantify and absolutely delightful to read
0: let me ask you a question about that because that's the book i've been looking at for ages because I keep hearing great things about it. And I was going mm-hmm. to try and get Tamsin on the show, because I think it is horror adjacent enough, isn't it? It is you, definitely you,
1: horror adjacent, you, yes. You'd be
0: amazed how much I can crowbar horror into things if, yeah. I, if I want to speak to an <laughs> yeah. author. Um, but one of the things I keep hearing about that book is that it does this weird thing of having these quite grandiose, fantastical um, scenes and then undercutting them with really kind of anachronistic um, slang and prose style. Is is yes. that true?
1: Yes, she references memes. Because um, I'm not sure how I would
0: feel about that.
1: <laughs> you know what? I just just go with it. That's all I can say. I have never had so much fun being deeply confused for hundreds of pages. Okay. Because yeah, it is jarring. It's got the trappings of high fantasy. It's got the trappings of sci-fi. And then it's got just this, this himbo main character, essentially, who <laughs> is existing amidst all this bizarre, intricate, super technical necromancy magic and she's like I don't care how it works here's my biceps and it's amazing and I love her so much yeah it. you will be confused you'll be confused for hundreds of pages but it will be so much fun you won't care and then at the end when you see how everything comes together and you see what she was doing the whole time you'll be like Gosh dang it, I'm just gonna quit writing forever um
0: well i I'm currently reading Scott Hawkins' uh, library at Mount Char, so I'm living in a state of confusion at the moment anyway, so that <laughs> that that's fine um, <laughs> yeah. I'll give it a go. Is it Tamsin Muir, Gideon the ninth Yes yes I'll, I'll give it a go I, on on your word, I'll give it a go um last question, can you tell me what truly scares you, Kirsten
1: um forgetting.
0: Oh, okay. Go on.
1: Uh, losing losing parts of myself um, and my past. Um, I always joke, you know, horror books don't scare me. I read them for comfort. I really enjoy them. Uh, but there was a book a few years ago called What Alice Forgot about a mom in her mid-30s who has three kids, and she falls and hits her head and loses the last 10 years of her life and doesn't remember them or their childhoods or who she is or how she got to be there. And that, to me was such a horrifying concept. Even oh. though it was played as a comedy, I could not read it. I found it so deeply disturbing um, as someone who who um, I don't store memories well. Um, and so that was it was too close to home. And so that was the scariest book I've ever read that I couldn't finish it.
0: Okay. Have you, have you seen any of these horror films recently, like The, the Relic or The Taken of Deborah Logan, which takes on yeah. Alzheimer's as a, a sort of demonic force?
1: No, I haven't seen either of
0: those. Yeah, they're they're, they're, they're both very good. Um, but I think they would freak you the hell out because they're about how forgetting and losing yourself, there may be more to it than just being, you know, mm. than, than just dementia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. Yeah, you should definitely watch, oh, the, to definitely watch the Relic because that's the, the, the slightly yeah. less o- OTT one. It's much more of a slow burn drama. It's excellent. If you want to be scared. Uh-huh. If you want to be scared. I mean, it's yeah. like you. Um, yeah,
1: no, I, I love being disturbed. I mean, the Babadook is probably the most disturbing movie I've ever seen as a parent because I was like, oh no, I get it, yeah, I get it, and I'm scared that I get it.
0: <laughs> See, I keep referencing wanting to kill children on this podcast because I've done it already <laughs> at, at the start of this conversation. I talked about you know how it's, I, I enjoyed films where they kill teenagers. I was speaking to Anne Heltzel last week about Just, Just like, like Mother, Mother yeah. and and the mm-hmm. way that it's really funny when the dog savages the the, the, the doll. And now I'm going to say it again. When you watch the Babadook, the kid's just the villain. <laughs> yeah. I, I watch it just being like, will someone please kill that kid?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you've ever had a difficult, if you had a colicky baby, if you've had a, a really difficult toddler or preschooler, yeah. I mean, they definitely can function as the villain in your life. And that's, uh, yeah, that, that one, that one as a mom was a little bit too real. Uh, my husband and I again looked at each other and we were like, oh, let's don't ever watch that again.
0: Yeah. But I do like to go to yeah. my wife now and again when she's not watching, just whis- whispering in her ear, "Bad, ba duck. It freaks her out. <laughs> <laughs> One of the most fun things to do. Uh, listen, we're, we're, I'm, I'm just waffling now. Let me just say, off the back of a of a, a, a sequence of books that I've talked about how fun they are. So Hidden Pictures by Jason Reculak, uh, Just Like Mother by Anne Heltzel, hide all three of these books make for great, in my opinion, what I would call a horror beach read in that they are propulsive. They're fun. You'll have a good time with them, but they're also about something. So I really wish you all the best for Hyde. I don't think you'll need my best wish. I think it'll do gangbusters, but, but thank you for coming on the show and thank you for talking scared.
1: Yes. Thank you so much for having me.
0: What began ostensibly as a podcast about horror seems to have morphed into a deconstruction of capitalism week on week. If you're only here for ghost stories and the axe murdering, I am sorry about that. But it's interesting, though, how almost every week at the moment we're finding these economic metaphors at the heart of the horror story. Interesting, but... I suppose not surprising. I'm not sure what things are like elsewhere, but here in the UK we're facing the greatest economic crisis for the best part of half a century. That's bound to birth monsters. So watch out for some absolutely killer social horror coming out of the UK in the next few years. I get a little tired, I must admit, of the casual way people throw around the word capitalism as this catch-all term for evil. It's undeniable, I think, that capitalism can and has been a force for good at times in human history. Now... That's a problematic statement for many. And before you think I'm some kind of neo-liberal convert, I'm just talking about refining terminology. What we should be really focused on is this malignant capitalism of our, our own lifetime, this so-called late capitalism. That, that's a term coined by a critic called Frederick Jameson to relate to the increasingly abstract, almost virtual notion of wealth and value as divorce from actual money or goods. I now think that we're in a late, late capitalism, or maybe the last capitalism before it all falls apart. Who knows? But in a time when the richest man on Earth is spending literally billions to buy a social media platform just because he can, you know, rather than ending one of many existential problems, that really is us going through the looking glass into something else. That runs the risk of becoming... A polemic. So I'll just say this, it's no wonder that horror is once more firmly about economics, because is there any greater dehumanising force in the world right now than our, our economic system? It's nightmarish. Hyde does a good job of embedding that horror into an otherwise superficial but fun story. Talking to Kirsten made me like her book more. I already liked it, it's, it's fun, but I liked it a lot more because the discussion made me see all of these strands coalescing into a genuine theme. The terror of precipitous lives and the need to commodify yourself to succeed. Like I say, it's something I recognise a little in myself, in the way this show has taken over my life. I really need to stop thinking about social media posts when I'm out running. I need to make sure that I keep the love for the reading itself, and I know that is the definition of first world problems, but it is tricky, and... Thankfully, the books I've read for the next two episodes really help with that because they are bangers, which I know is a bit of a plug to keep you coming back. Don't worry, though. I'm not going sour on this podcast. It's still the thing I'm proudest of. I love doing it. It's my little dark, sinister baby. But I do think as creatives we should all fiercely protect the things we love from dilution by the need to be financially successful. Keep the joy, folks. Right, that's a bit of a meandering after chat this week. It went from (laughs) economic lecture to to sort of self-help guru. (laughs) As ever, I am open to all correspondence. I want to hear from you. Are you still liking the show? Do you have suggestions for how I can improve it? Has anything changed that you don't like? I'm a work in progress. I'm open to all your thoughts. Let me know. Email, as ever, talkingscaredpod at gmail.com or find me at at talk scared pod on instagram or twitter i've got rid of tiktok it's just basically it's a time sink and it's just full of teenagers dancing but only from the waist up i don't need it if you are liking this show i'll reiterate reviews are the lifeblood and please leave one if you can and if you're really liking it consider joining talking scared patreon for more bonus content To give you an idea of what's on there, there'll soon be extra chat from Kirsten, Jason, Rakuluk, and next week's guest. uh, We'll we'll be talking about, amongst many things, the influence of music on their writing. And I'm also going to be answering some questions on my choices for that 50 greatest horror novels thing that I wrote for Esquire. So, patrons, fire your questions over. And new patrons, the link is in the show notes. I keep hinting at next week's guest, Dona. I'll just tell you, it's Scott Hawkins, author of The Library at Mount Char, which is simply one of the weirdest, most fantastic books I've read since this show began. It's a bona fide modern cult classic, and it was great fun to dive deeply into its mysteries with Scott. He imparts a lot of insider knowledge, so fans of that book, or anyone really, come back for that next week. Until then though, protect your passions. Make it a hobby, not a hustle, and have some bloody avocado toast if you want some. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.